confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning. It's Wednesday, 21st of September on The Michael Reed Show. This morning, the shocking shortage of GPs practicing in County Meath is raising concerns as an increasing number of patients are finding it more difficult to get an appointment. New research reveals worrying insights concerning the confidence and mindset of young girls in Ireland. Safe Ireland call for significant investment from the government in the forthcoming budget to tackle domestic abuse. And the problem of homelessness continues as figures show an increase in the number of people DePaul Ireland helped last year. These stories and more over the next two hours here on The Michael Reed Show with Alan Cantwell. You're very welcome to us this morning. Now, Age Action has sounded a warning that there is a risk the measures announced to reform the state pension will lead to inadequacies and unfairness for large groups of workers. The organisation said that while it welcomes the recognition that people want a flexible retirement system, the proposal to defer the state pension while working up to the age of 70 in exchange for a higher weekly rate is likely to have unintended negative consequences. Joining us this morning is Policy Specialist with Age Action, Nat O'Connor. Um, Nat, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, can we just deal with those unintended negative consequences? What are they? Well, I suppose the, the, the first thing is if you have somebody who, who may have started work early in their teens even, uh, and they may have worked in arduous work, it could be manual work, it could be on their feet in a, in a retail setting, in a factory setting. There's lots of different jobs where people can literally be physically un- unable to continue work past the age of 66. So somebody in, in a situation like that simply won't have the opportunity to work until age 69 or 70. So they won't have an opportunity to get this higher pension rate. 
So that seems very unfair, particularly somebody could have worked for 45 or 50 years making contributions, and yet they'll get the, the, the age 66 rate pension. They won't have any opportunity to get that higher rate pension. So that, that's something that people have already communicated to us that they, they see as unfair. They don't understand why, as they see it, there's a new full rate pension that they are excluded from. So that's, that's a big concern. Um, I, I was looking at an actuarial analysis of the figures in relation to people who decide to push it out to 70 um, to work and then draw down the pension, albeit that they will get that extra increments per month that you wouldn't get if you retired at 66. And it transpires that, you know, in order to get the net benefit from that, from uh, a man's perspective, you have to hit an age of 86. Now, when you take into consideration that the average age before we shuffle off this mortal coil for men is 84, it doesn't really uh, make a whole lot of sense for us, does it? I mean, fair well, enough, if you're a woman with their life expectancy, yes, it does. Well, I suppose there's, there's, there's better news than that. I mean, if you make it to, six, to 65 you have a very good chance of making it to 85, both men and women. Um, because, of course, average life expectancy, you know, includes the people who unfortunately die before they hit retirement age. So, so once you hit 65, you know, our, our longevity as a society is getting much better. And, but you're right. I mean, it, 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 this question of whether or not you should defer the pension, it, it is a question about well, what's your health status, you know, how long are you likely to live? Um, because for every year that you don't take up the pension, that's €13,000 you're not receiving. Um, so it, it does depend on your health. It also depends on your income tax situation. If you're paying a higher rate of income tax as you're working age 66, 67, you know, the state pension would also be taxable. So it might make sense to defer it because you'd have less of a loss then, but you're to take that income at a later stage when you wouldn't be paying, say, the higher rate of income tax. So it, 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 it becomes a calculation that's going to be different for different people depending on their health depending on the type of work they do, the level of income tax they pay and so on. So, so essentially it's a case of, you know, do an independent analysis on the basis of what your requirements are, what you do, what your tax uh, uh, circumstances are, and do it on that basis more than anything else because it's not a case of, you know, this is grab all for everyone. It's far from that. Exactly. So, I mean, although it can look like, oh, someone who retires at 70 is getting much more money per week, and they are, you know, in objective terms, getting significantly more at 315 euro compared to 253, you know, in the current rates. Um, but at the same time, they have gone without the pension for a number of years. So, you know, it, it all swings around about. But the, 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 the bigger picture really is not everybody's going to be in a position to get independent advice on their pension. Um, and a lot of people simply, you know, they... they, they they pay their dues in terms of the social insurance that they pay throughout their working life. They expect to get the full state pension at the end if they've done enough years' work. And that clarity is being taken away from the system. It's no longer obvious to people, well, what is the full rate? And is it fair? And am I getting, you know, as much as I might be entitled to? And it's, it's that we, we would be worried about someone, for example, who might push themselves to keep working a couple of extra years because they think they're going to be better off with this new system. And that's 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 difficulty, and and it's very difficult because we have to factor in unknowns such as inflation, cost of living, etc., etc., etc. So we can't really make an informed choice until we get closer to that particular point. But that that is entirely true. Now there are some good things. I mean, in in the overall analysis, I mean, there's talk of moving against mandatory retirement, which would make all of this you know, um, a better conversation for many people because at the moment, lots of people in the contract have a clause that says you must retire at age 65 where you don't have any entitlement to the state pension. 
and you may or may not get the benefit payment for 65-year-olds. And at 65 so, or 66 or 67 in this day and age, it's very young to be giving up everything, that there are individuals at that age who have so much to contribute in terms of experience, in terms of training, and in terms of expertise that they can pass on, as well as wanting themselves to continue to work for whether whether it's, you know, mental well-being or it's just what they want to do. Absolutely. I mean, uh, your European-wide surveys would show two-thirds of older persons would like to keep working, maybe move to part-time, maybe take a partial pension. So the kind of flexibility that many people want to see. I mean, from Age Action's perspective, we want people to have choice and control. If somebody wishes to retire at 66, they certainly should be able to do that and get their full state pension. But if someone wants to keep working, you know, that, that flexibility should be there. And so while the new system, as proposed, you know, brings in some flexibility, we want to make sure that it, it's really going to deal with the mandatory retirement issue. There's talk of it, but it's very unclear, you know, whether that will affect existing contracts. I just want to hundreds of thousands of people. Right. I just want to ask you that about, you know, somebody ultimately has to pay for this. And if we were to look, <coughs> excuse me, at what the propositions are, it's PRSI. And we're talking about incremental increases in that over a period of a decade. Is that the most reasonable and cost effective and equitable way to do it? Pretty much. I mean, we're not paying, you know, the money into a black hole, if you like. We all have to, you know, we have the success story that most of us are going to live longer in older age. Most of us can look forward to having, you know, years of active, healthy older age. Now, in order to have an income, in order to enjoy that older age, you know, we, we need to have a decent pension that's going to give us a decent minimum. So we have to pay for that. And if we all pay a little bit more out of our pockets now, we will all get that money back in terms of the decent state pension. And it's one of the best investments we could make as a society. Now, every report, whether it's the Pensions Commission report of last year, the recent Tax and Welfare Commission report, whenever anybody looks at these numbers, the Irish level of social insurance is very low compared to most other European countries. And of course, we have fewer older people than most other European countries because of the emigration over the decades. So we're now moving towards the European norm. And, you know, we, we have to put in place some way of paying for this uh, and the, the, the PRSI system including the employer's contribution um, is, is probably the, the easiest way to pay it and the fairest way in terms of we're all paying for what we're going to get in future. Okay, Nat, I, I just want to talk to you a little bit and we're probably going off slightly on a tangent here but it's very much in, in, entwined with, with the conversation around the difficulties that the individuals you represent are and the stories you hear every day. €800 Euro more for groceries per annum Bills increasing, lack of finance available to meet, you know, the day-to-day living expenses, particularly that elderly people meet. How difficult is it it out there for the people you represent? It's it's extremely difficult. Uh, Now, obviously, people are in different circumstances, but many people rely on just the state pension as their core income, if not their only income. So if you consider that the, the state pension, its spending power in January of last year it's down, you know, over 20, uh, 24 euro by July of this year in terms of what it'll buy you on a weekly basis. So, so in other words, there's less groceries, less energy that you can simply afford because the money doesn't stretch as far. And our analysis is that by the end of this year, uh, despite the fiver we got last January, at the end of this year, the, the spending power will be down about 30 euro a week. So that adds up enormously. And there's talk of adding maybe 10 euro or 15 euro to the state pension, but that won't be enough because it simply won't allow people to stand still. And we've called for 23 euro on the state pension based on the, the lost spending power just for this year alone. But 
you know, with prices continuing next year, it's, it's going to continue. And in real terms, that means um, people not being able to buy, for example, um, you know, to have a, a meal with meat or fish or some other protein every second day. That's one of the deprivation statistics that we keep an eye on. And of course, if people are not getting enough protein in their diet, that has serious health effects. And in fact, older people need more protein, not less, as, 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 as you age, you know, to maintain the body. Uh, it means people not turning on the heating. And older persons generally need to keep, to keep warm and, and may need a slightly higher temperature in the home or if you're in the home for longer during the day because you're not out. out. Okay. Again, that cost is, has health effects. Okay, Nat, we must leave it there. Nat O'Connor, Senior Public Affairs and Policy Analyst with Age Action Ireland. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme this Wednesday morning. Mary Kennedy from Anna Gasson was on this show two weeks ago and highlighted the plight of her two daughters and other children in the Mid-Louth area who've been denied a place on the school bus transport scheme this year. Mary joins us this morning just for an update on this. Mary, good morning. Thanks for joining us again. Just for the benefit of those listeners who are not familiar with this story. Can you just give us a brief background to it, please? Yes, good morning, Alan. Morning. Thanks for chatting with me. Alan, yes, I have um, two daughters travelling from Anagasin to uh, Bilui in Dundalk. And one of them is in third year, the other is in fifth year. And we have been uh, on um, granted tickets on a concessionary basis every year during their, their school time. So every year we would have this nervousness about will we get a ticket, will we not? And every year up to this year, by and large, we have, albeit that it has been very late. This year has been very different whereby our kids and many other children going on the same bus and other buses have been left without a ticket. Um, And it's causing a lot of stress to ourselves to our kids and to the many other families. Okay, but Mary, uh, this seems straightforward enough. You either qualify or you don't. There's no middle ground. Why are you finding it a struggle to get these tickets if you're qualified for them? Well, uh, there is an eligibility criteria, which... Which you obviously meet, I presume. Well, we we, we have for the last two years because under the extended alleviation measures... Norma Foley advised that kids going to their nearest or next nearest school qualified under eligibility criteria. Okay. Even up to last week when she spoke at the Shannon, she reiterated that. As such, our children in Anagasin and in other play, in other towns and villages across the country qualify under that. But in any case, we send our kids to the schools from first year. There is an understanding there that they will go through to sixth year. We have little alternatives to get our kids to school on a daily basis other than these school transport buses. Okay, so So, let me ask you about that, uh, just, just to follow on from that. Where does it leave your children in terms of getting to school? Are they are they making it to school every day? They are making it to school. It's a mix of a, us dropping them out but there are many parents putting their, without tickets putting their kids on the bus as there's just no viable alternative for them and get because, due to work and other personal commitments so it is a mix for all our kids Alan whether they go by car 
or go on the school transport bus even without a ticket. Okay, you no doubt have sought clarification around the qualifying criteria and why it's the case that you did a number of years ago qualifying, now you don't. What clarity, if any, have you been given from authorities around this? We've been given very little authority or um, understanding or confirmation about why. I mean, we have been concessionary for the for several years now, um, which has left us in a, in a position of no man's land. But certainly last year and this year, we fall within the eligibility guidelines based on those extended alleviation measures. Mm-hmm. But we're finding that People are not coming to the table, Alan, to talk about this. Norma was on television last night and really she gave no, you know, adequate answers for parents who are in a position of worry and stress, as are their kids on a daily basis. There is no moving forward. We talk about the review or she talks about the review that's ongoing, but there is an immediate need to address this issue and then there's a need to address the longer term issue regarding concessionary tickets. Okay Mary, you obviously um, feel very strongly about this and you're escalating your protest to the extent that you're going to to protest uh, at Bosser in in Dundalk. When's that happening and what do you hope to achieve? That's happening today at half past one. So we did have a protest last week uh, in Anagasen and we we, uh, shared that on social media. But today now we have to escalate that because it seems that Norma and Department of Education are not listening. We've also spoken with each of the schools in Dundalk where we're, where our children are going to and they have a major concern as well with regards to the, to the potential lack of country students being able to come to their school because they find that country students enhance the school uh, life for all students. Okay, Mary, I've run out of time there, but what I do promise you is we'll keep a very close eye on this and see how it evolves over the coming weeks and the outcome of that protest. It almost seems inconceivable that, you know, education is a basic human right, and if you can't get your children to a point where their education, to be educated, there's something very seriously wrong. That's Mary Kennedy joining us uh, this morning. Now, this year's National Ploughing Championships is an opportunity to showcase green technologies in the agricultural sector and change the lazy narrative around Irish farmers and climate change. Not my words, those of Fulgail MEP Colin Markey, a member of the European Parliament Committee on Agriculture. He said farmers don't get enough credit for their efforts to embrace change and help drive down emissions. He said agriculture is the only sector which has been at the centre of fierce debate around emission reduction targets. Earlier this year, the farming community was unfairly labelled as being reluctant to change, which he said couldn't be further from the truth. Colin Markey joins us this morning. Uh, Colin, good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um... Uh, why do you say, can you put into context the comments that you were making there around farmers? I mean, there is a perception. Is it just a perception that farmers are slow to react? Or what's the reality on the ground? I think the reality on the ground is that farm, like if you talk, any farmers I talked up and down, and been up and down all day yesterday here again today, they're willing to engage in, with new technology and see what can be done to change the the, uh, if you like the emissions level from agriculture there's no doubt there's an issue in food production across the whole world uh, yes in, in Irish context we're probably one of the most uh, low emitting agricultural systems in the world and I suppose from an Irish farmer's perspective 
there's various things that can be done, have been identified, can be done to reduce emissions. To Currently, we're talking about an 18% reduction in emissions from technologies that have been developed by the like of Chagask. And there's an t- ambition there to go, to go to 25%. Okay, well, can I ask you, Colin, what are the contentious... This is just, and I, I will allow you to jump in, but just while it's in front of mind here, the, one of the major contentious issues around emissions is in relation to the national herd. What's your view on that? Should it be reduced in order to get in line with other European countries to get the emissions down? I think what we have to do is make our national herd a developer system where we're emitting less, a, let's say, methane from our national herd. And we've identified a number of different technologies that can be used that, if you like, can re- reduce the level of emissions in the system rather than eliminating the system altogether. Because ultimately, if you remove uh, animal production from, let's say, this part of the world, be it Ireland or Europe, it'll ultimately be replaced by production from some other part of the world where emission standards will be higher and uh, ultimately the net effect will be a negative rather than a positive. Mm-hmm. Like the, the greatest level of research, I suppose, there is into, into the likes of food production, into the likes of farming systems, is probably in Europe where the, 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 the greater level of investment is in the industry. And as a result, you're kind of developing technologies quicker across Europe than you are in other parts of the world. Allied like that with the fact that our grass-based system is, is probably one of the best mm production systems out there. So rather than saying reduce the herd here and, and lose the capacity to develop those new technologies, I think we, we have to focus on making, if you like, the emissions within the system less as opposed to uh, eliminating the system and then uh, uh, producing it elsewhere in the world. Column, can I ask you, do you think we've been presented with a real opportunity despite the crisis that's going on in Europe and Eastern Europe over, you know, um, supply chain issues, uh, raw material issues, that we should look at agriculture in Ireland a little bit differently and plan for the future that we become more sustainable than we are and that we become a more agri-focused country than we have perhaps in the past? I don't think we necessarily have to become a more agri-focused country. I think within our agricultural sector, we probably have two uh, great opportunities. One is to create a sustainable model of, of food production. I think the consumer out there needs their food to be produced sustainably, and we can get on that bus, if you like, and, and be a, a world leader in that regard. At the same time, we have to look at the, the potential that's out there in terms of energy production as well, which can also be produced from the land. I think... The, the interlink between, let's say, energy production and food production, uh, like if you take, for instance, our, uh, our food production system is uh, currently very dependent on fertilisers, and uh, the, the link between fertiliser and energy is very close. And if we can wean ourselves off our dependency on fertilisers up to organic things like like, like clover, that will certainly yeah. help our and sustainability of our food, uh, food production model, but also we have the opportunity then to, to develop, let's say, energy production as well. So I think it's very much a land-use strategy we need to look at. We need to look at sustainable food production. And I think farmers have to be at the centre of that because they have the practical answers to how that can be done. They want to produce the food sustainably. They know that the people they're supplying, the, the, the co-ops, and the, they, they recognise that a, they need to be able to trade their... their, their they need to even market their produce Okay, Colm, you, you touched on one particular issue that is becoming very challenging from farmer, for farmers, and that's the availability of fertiliser. And I know that Charlie McConnell Oak addressed this, but he didn't give any concrete, you know, sounding that there would be financial subvention for farmers around this. Are you prepared to tell us, you know, differently? Is there something coming down the track? 
Well, I think that there has to be something done in relation to the short term. Like I think in the long term, we have to have less dependency on fertiliser. I actually sent a letter to the Commission this week in relation to looking for a, a strategic approach to the coming, let's say, season next year as regards fertilisers, because clearly the gas which will be used to, to produce fertilisers in previous years, it, it possibly won't be available across across Europe. And we have to look at alternative supplies of gas or alternative supplies of actual fertilisers to be imported from abroad. There's all sorts of protections of the European fertiliser industry that uh, uh, there's tariffs for imports from outside of Europe. And I think that has to be looked at. But, but it's a twin-trong approach. I couldn't emphasise that enough. At one level, we need to secure the short-term energy, or, or sorry, a food supply in terms of fertilisers. But in the long term, we really... And it was the focus of an awful lot of conversation here yesterday how we can reduce our dependency on fertilisers. Okay, well, I just want to ask you, Colm, in relation to the planning championship, we've had it now, oh, it's been two years, I think it's been. It's been off off the radar, but it's back and very much back with a roar, up to 300,000 people expected to be there. How important is an event like the National Planning Championship for the agricultural sector? Well, I think it's really the heartbeat of the agricultural sector. Like the amount, when you have 300 people here who are heavily invested, both in as, as frontline farmers, if you like, but also in terms of the industry that's behind that, in terms of, there's approximately, I think it's uh, about uh, 180,000 people that are employed directly in farming, and then another 180,000 that are, are employed indirectly, like with the support service. And that's more or less one in 10 of the of the of the employment of the whole country. But but the, the reality of that is it's employment in rural Ireland, whereas there, there, there are, in a lot of the more remote parts of rural Ireland, there aren't that many opportunities. And agriculture and the multiplier effect of agriculture in the local economy is very important. I suppose if you allow that along the fact, the fact that the farmers by their nature are operating on their own and it's quite an isolated business. And the opportunity to literally just meet people and catch up with people they haven't seen for, for what is now three years there is a great social occasion. There's a great a conversation and debate about where the future and direction of okay. agriculture is going. And for that reason, I think it's just as important as the, the ploughing itself and the technologies. Of okay. It. Colin Markey, Funagail MEP for the Midlands North West Constituency. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Welcome back. If you want to text or WhatsApp us, our number is 86 658 Concern has been expressed at the low number of GPs practising in County Meath. Councillor Emer Tobin said, in effect, the number of GPs to a population of more than 220,000 people falls well below safe levels of GP healthcare access. The A2 councillor said it begs the question as to why patients in Meath are completely being failed by the HSE in terms of GP resources. And Councillor Tobin joins us this morning. Councillor, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Just looking at these figures, you sought under an FOI the number of GPs from 2018 to 20. 2022. Uh, just doing a quick calculation at the top of my head. So that's on average about 70. That's an appalling number. 70 GPs to deal with the population of County Meath. Uh, good morning, Alan, and good morning to your listeners. Uh, it, it absolutely is. I was I really was shocked when, when I realised the number was so low. Even though I would have a good number of people coming to me looking to get help in terms of trying to access a, a GP but at the same time, I still didn't expect it to be amongst those figures because when I got the, 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 the PQ response, I got onto the Irish Patient Association just to see what the national average is of, of people to, to GP. And that, again, really just kind of shone the light on the fact that, that me is just way, way, way 
um, you know, poorly resourced in, in terms of GPs. So, for example, the national average, now these figures aren't 100% up to date, so I will say that I'm trying to get the figures for 2021, but no luck yet. Okay. But back in 2018, there was one GP nationally to 861 people. Okay. And in Meads, at the moment, there's one GP to 3,059 people. So that's not workable. I mean, there must be queues out the door. There must be people who are unable to get onto the lists of any GPs because they're just oversubscribed. I would say, Alan, there's a large number of people in this county that don't see a GP because they can't get one. So that is is a pretty stark thing to say. I was calling in on a couple of elderly people on another matter one day during the summer and they were really sick and, and I said, gosh, you guys should be a doctor. And they said, we've tried, we, we've been ringing the medical centre to no avail and they wouldn't know that there's a, an option to email in. But, you know, there's a lot of elderly people that don't have that option. So the phone should be there as a resource for people to make contact. But in this case, they, they had tried for four or five days, got nowhere. I put in a call, um, couldn't get their GP because his books were full for, for the next couple of weeks. So I just said to them, could I get any GP? I said, somebody needs to see this elderly couple quickly. So thankfully, I managed to get another GP. However, they were hoping this elderly couple, because they were so ill, that he'd come out in person to see them. That wasn't on the cards because he was just so busy. So he did a diagnosis over the phone. And, um, you know, thankfully, we we got that done for them. But at the same time, it's not very reassuring for some people that this... Uh, Yeah, look, hang on a second. Not questioning the individual's expertise and training, but to diagnose somebody over the phone is a completely different proposition to have somebody standing in front of you. I mean, that's not the way we need to be going here. No, and this particular couple now, they're, they're the type that would make no fuss. They don't have anybody to lobby on their behalf. And I, my heart went out to them. I just thought, this is terrible. When you get to this age in your life and you can't call on your GP to, to see you in person and to, you know, as I say, kind of give a more reassuring diagnosis of, of what the ailment was. But look, we got them sorted and thankfully they're fine. But okay. There's well, there's, yeah? it's, it strikes me then, Councillor, that there is only one other option remaining open to individuals who can't get access to a GP who find themselves that they may not be critically or seriously ill but need to see somebody so therefore they go into the local emergency department and that in itself creates other problems. It does indeed and that was another reason um, that I put in this PQ because as we all know there's a relentless push to close NAV and A&E and the replacement offering is a, a GP referral medical assessment unit and this just, on top of all the, the, the kind of um, ill-thought-out uh, planning, this just seems to be another, another level of input to the people in Mead in that the, the government is suggesting people get a referral for the medical assessment unit if they need emergency care in Mead. Now, there's nobody that if they're in a moment of severe urgency or you know, deep anxiety where they need any treatment, they're not going to be able to get a GP referral even if they're trying to get an out-of-hours GP referral, they're dealing with another, another layer of difficulty. So, you know, we'd be, we'd be extremely concerned that access to healthcare in this county seems to be facing another block because this is a non-runner. It really is. People are waiting, you know, one or two weeks to get a GP um, appointment. I'll give you another situation. My own mother tried to get an appointment and... Uh, she got one two weeks after her first call. 
And by the time she got the appointment, she'd forgotten what was what her original reason for calling mm. was. You know, and there's lots of elderly people, you know, if their memory is, is, is waning a wee bit, this, what, this is what happens. And you know yourself, treatment delayed is treatment denied. And I just don't see the government as treating this extremely serious problem in, in the way that it should. What, what's your view to the argument that has been put forward that GP practices tend to be clogged up by individuals who don't necessarily need to see a GP, that they can be self-treated, they may have a sniffle, a cold, an ache, a pain and maybe paracetamol or whatever will solve the problem as opposed to going to the GP and taking up somebody else's time who's probably a more worthy patient. It's, it's not my experience in, in truth. I, I, you know, I talk to GPs because, you know, we, we're aware they have to be overwhelmed. They have to be extremely busy because there are, you know, there's a huge pool of people that need their help. And yet there's a small pool of GPs available. So anytime I'm dealing with people, I'm dealing with very, very serious cases where they can't get through to the medical centre. We're talking about an appointment maybe two weeks uh, in, in the future. And, you know, there's many people that could be fine and they could, you know, endure till that date. But there are other people that cannot wait. I have another young chap who's trying to get a GP referral for medical or sorry, for mental health services. Again, it took a few days to get an appointment. He was not able to get it by himself. His family weren't able to get it. You know, it's terrible that people are coming in to, to you know, constituency offices, asking councillors and TDs to get them something as basic as a GP appointment. OK, we must leave it there. Councillor Eamor Tobin, Aintu Councillor on Meath County Council. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. 086-1800-658. That's the number if you want to get in touch with us to comment on any of the items we have covered so far or will be covering between now and 10 o'clock. Let's press on this morning. 80% of teenage girls don't feel they will have the same opportunities as boys. 77% of teen girls in Ireland don't feel beautiful. Almost 60% agree that they have worries or anxieties that nobody knows about. That's according to the Shona Project, a movement that tackles difficulties facing girls aged 11 and upwards living in Ireland in an era of social media, bullying, low self-esteem, body issues, anxiety and depression. Founded by Tammy Darcy, the Shona Project's mission is to educate, empower and inspire today's girls to become tomorrow strong, confident leaders. And Tammy Darcy joins us this morning. Tammy, good morning. Thank you for joining us. This, morning, is something that, uh, this is something that truly gets me triggered every time we discuss it. And I think it's all rooted in social media and the impact on influence, so-called influencers and social media is having on the lives, particularly of young girls. Yeah, we're singing from the same hymn sheet on that one, Adam, for <laughs> So di- sure. ditch the phones, ditch social media. <laughs> I mean, look, I don't think, um, you know, I, I've, I work with girls every day in schools and I think you, you're kind of wasting your breath saying that, but I think it's around raising the awareness of, first of all, like how much they use it and second of all, what they consume when they're on it. So, you know, we didn't find these stats particularly surprising because we work with these girls, we hear them every day, but, you know, 85% nearly agree that um, social media has had an effect on their mental health, but I I can't see it going anywhere soon, you know, so all we can do is educate and support and try and counteract as best we can for the time being. It's become an epidemic. There's no question about that. And the influence that people have on social media and the impact that they can have, sometimes innocently, on individuals are far reaching. 
Yeah, 100%. I mean, we asked girls like some very basic questions like, do they feel loved? Do they feel supported? Do they feel safe? Half responded yes to all of those questions. Um, and only 28% said that they feel emotionally strong. So that means like four out of every five girls don't. Um, and, you, you, you know, there's just a perfect storm over the last few years, which like social media had made things bad enough. We had an anxiety epidemic. Then we had COVID at a really key period in these girls' lives. Um, and they just feel like nothing is safe and nothing is secure and nothing is constant anymore in their lives. So they need support now more than ever before. We, I think we really need, need to get behind this generation, boys and girls, as much as possible. Individualism has gone out the door. Everybody wants to be part of a tribe. I suppose that's historic and, gra- and ingrained in most of us, but more so now than ever before, that there is no real room for a voice in the wilderness in relation to any particular topic because you will either be dragged down or perhaps supported by a minority. Is that is that a reasonable assessment? That is 100% a reasonable assessment. And I think, you know, in in my generation and, and in your generation, you know, you would have had a group in school and, you know, you might have had a couple of friends. But now they feel that, OK, we're, we're following these girls online that are 18, 19, 20, early 20s. And, you know, they have this bag and they have this career. And who know nothing, who know nothing about the trials and tribulations of life, but yet they're prepared to sit there and comment on them and give advice, which is not worth a penny candle. But people listen to them. Yeah, well, I just don't think it's authentic, you know, and I think I believe that anybody who has a platform has a moral responsibility to use it in a positive way and to influence those that look up to them. And a huge part of that is being authentic and showing all parts of your life and like starting conversations about these things, because all of these girls feel like they're completely alone. Like they're the only ones. And not only are all of these girls feeling alone, but a lot of their parents who are worried about their daughters feel that they're alone as well. You know, that my daughter's the only daughter who's feeling like this and they don't talk to each other and get support from each other either. Now, one of the worrying statistics that jumped out at me was almost 60% agreed that they have worries or anxieties that nobody knows about. That's concerning because their parents don't know about it. They can't help them. They can't provide intervention if it's required. Is it a case that these people or the younger cohort, are losing the ability to communicate in a normal fashion around issues, emotional or otherwise, that they're experiencing? And is it because of social media? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's fairly clear, you know, to my mind that that's what it is. Like, the work that we do, that's why it's so important, because we go into schools, we open up to girls about our own experience. And in a lot of cases, we find they've never been spoken to like that before, especially in school, you know, and teachers are doing a great job. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, 
for the ones who get it done. Doing their best, their job is to teach, but you know, to, to create positive cultures within schools where every single girl can come in no matter what she's going through and know that all the other girls in her year will have her back is absolutely transformative because, you know, a lot of them just feel like they're surviving these teenage years. They're not thriving. Um, you know, they're they're struggling. Yeah, big time, big time. I'm, I mean, despite, I'm, I'm sure I'm not an outlier when it comes to my views on social media and the impact that it's having on younger people but it's next to impossible to try and change behavioural patterns around social media, no matter how many times I go ballistic at home when I see, and I have seen it, I'm sure people have seen it, where people are communicating to one another in the same room over Snapchat or whatever the hell the hell it is, or Facebook or messaging. That is just, you know, we're on a road to absolute destruction if we continue that process. Yeah, and the thing is, they feel like they're connecting, but they're not connecting. You know, like we all experienced this over COVID when we were having meetings on Zoom. It's draining. It doesn't fulfill you. You don't get that kind of wellness buzz that you get from being with somebody that you admire, somebody who you look up to or somebody who makes you feel safe, that like personal connection. You know, and when you think about it, they've they've missed that for two years. So now they don't know how to prioritise it or maybe some still don't feel safe I don't know what the situation is but that sense of connection to other people by telling them what's really going on with us which then gives them permission to tell us what's really going on with them um, that's what we need to get back to and it's such a simple thing What's your view in relation to these so-called influencers who come on and are peddling their wares I mean in the majority of cases they're absolute bozos who have nothing to say for themselves should they be banned from the platforms um, I mean that's not really for me to say whether they should be no but I'm sure you have a view I, in terms of the I, impact I that they have yeah I definitely have a view on the impact that they have you know I think they're filtered they like the girls in these adverts and in these posts don't even look like the girls in the adverts in these posts, you know. Um, I think there's conversations around it. I can't see the legislation really changing any time soon. So all that we can do is educate these girls, empower these girls, have these conversations with them in the meantime and, you know, encourage them. I believe their stories and their voices are their superpowers um, and that's what we should be sharing with each other and hopefully eventually that will drown out and actually cause them to consider what they're hearing on social media and okay. to evaluate it more critically. I'll come to the Shine Festival in a moment, but I just want to ask you, I mean, if we were to do a little bit of crystal ball gazing here and consider what the consequences of what is going on in social media and the impact it's having, we're, we're storing up a lot of problems 10 years, 20 years down the road, aren't we? Yes, we are. Like these young people who are currently in a survival mode are going to go into the workplace soon. And... It feels to me at the moment that they're not equipped for that. They don't feel that they can achieve anything. They don't feel like they'll be supported to achieve their goals and their dreams. They don't know what they can deal with in terms of challenges um, and what and resilience is overused, but what resilience they have to go out into the world and manage relationships, career, you know, day-to-day adult life. Yeah, zero, zero coping mechanisms. That is the consequence of this. There's no question about it. No question, yeah. Okay, talk to me about the Shine Festival and try and bring some light or, or, or some, <laughs> some well, sort look, of confidence is, back. Yeah, the Shona Project is here. We've been working for six years. We've been doing really, really important work. And what we 
do with Shine Festival is we bring together thousands of girls to hear from inspirational women, to hear about all these topics that they care about. So it's a live event this year. We're back to live again. Um, we have thousands of girls coming in person, but we also are inviting schools to stream it for free turn your classroom, your gym, your school hall into like a mini festival site, get all the girls together, have them hear from these amazing women and then let's start these discussions and then there's a whole year's worth of content again freely available to schools to use as like for class discussions and stuff like that and let's show these girls that our generation are invested in them and we believe in them even if they don't believe in themselves. And it all goes back to self-confidence which is eroded bit by bit by bit the more that they engage on social media. Tammy, I'm sorry for being so triggered it's not directed at you it's not new to me don't worry <laughs> Tammy Darcy the Shona Project uh, thank you for joining us this morning Michael Reed on LMFM 086 658 if you want to get in contact with us this morning to comment on any of the items which we have been covering a couple of comments to get through school bus fiasco Jean from RD it's unacceptable the way rural school bus scheme is being run all children who live in the country should be entitled to a bus place it's a joke that parents are now having to drive their children to school. I thought the government was trying to take more cars off the road. And in relation to pensions, Declan from Lavin, I think this pension reform is to be welcomed. Once it's a choice and people are not forced to work past the age of 66, I think it's a good idea. Some of your comments there that we got through. Safe Ireland's pre-budget 2023 submission is calling for a commitment of €283 million euro in investment in measures across eight government departments to mitigate the impact of violence against women. Increased funding for domestic violence services, additional refuge units, a novel safe at home sanctuary scheme and a waiver of means testing for both the exceptional needs payment and free legal aid are some of the proposals in the document titled Naming Domestic Violence Visible Investment for Change. And joining us this morning to discuss this and other matters is Miriam Kivlen, uh, who's Programme and Communications Manager with Safe Ireland. Miriam, thanks for joining us this morning. I want to talk to you a little bit first um, about domestic violence. It's something which came very much to the fore during COVID. We had recognised a considerable spike in the incidence of domestic violence. Have we been able to cope with the increased numbers and have they settled in any shape or form? Or are we witnessing a continued increase in the curve? First of all, good morning, Alan, and good morning to your listeners. Um, and to start off, I suppose, in response to your first question there, um, the, the significant thing that happened during COVID was, I suppose, that it revealed in many instances a problem that um, had, had, had existed for many decades, but wasn't quite so visible. And that coincided also, I suppose, with um, with the lockdowns and with people who were living in otherwise healthy relationships and when they experienced the strain that, 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 that they experienced during lockdown, there was a certain empathy, I suppose, and an existential awareness of the problem of what it must be like to be living in domestic violence situations uh, all of the time. So there was a lot of sort of um, um, public awareness and empathy that emerged at that time. Um, we were very cautious about um, um, kind of narratives around the increase in, in, in domestic violence during that time. What we know is that we, we became more aware of it and it was more exposed and certainly um, certain instances may have accelerated um, where, where there was a previously unhealthy relationship before COVID. Okay. Um, to answer your question as well about how, how the services are coping, th- there was an increased demand because obviously the, even some of the informal 
exit pathways that maybe women use before they would uh, uh, turn up at a service where they're able to, <coughs> excuse me, bail out from home for a couple of days or go and stay with a family member or those informal sort of um, exit um, or relief yeah. pathways that some women are able to avail of, they were completely shut down. So for many, the first place of of of, uh, of, of refuge was with a local service. OK, well, um, well, let me ask you in this context then, are sufficient and adequate services available to make it easier for women who are in situations that they are suffering domestic abuse and domestic violence to move out of that situation and get support rather than having to go to a family member or a relative or whatever? Sure, I suppose, well, there's 39 services across the country at the moment um, and as to whether or not there are adequate numbers of services, again, is, is a question that isn't fully answered, but certainly there would be pockets of the country that might not have, would be, be, be within easy access of a service. But for the most part, the services that are there extend their outreach as far as they can. But they're under-resourced to be able to extend themselves any further than they can at the moment. In fact, most of them really aren't resourced to be able to cope with with the numbers that they are, are, are servicing already. So there is an issue of the existing services being under-resourced, the need to extend and outreach to other areas or the establishment of new services. And there are a couple of new services that are emerging around about the country or particularly in populous areas and maybe remote areas where there isn't quite reach. Um, And then the issue of refuge is is a separate issue again because there are far less refuges than there are services because not all services that exist have a refuge. Um, So there are a a lot of voids throughout the country. Okay. Can you explain to me um, this whole notion of a safe at home sanctuary scheme? How does that work? Well, yes. So I suppose what we would say at Safe Ireland is when you're looking at, for example, exit strategies, you have to look at a much broader response than just simply refuge. A lot of people are familiar with the idea of refuge, but refuge is only a very temporary solution. And in most, in most cases, but not all, so there are exceptions, but in most cases, the, the, the preferred option is for a woman to be able to return safely with her family and the children to the family home. That requires a number of things. First of all, that the perpetrator is, is removed and, there, and, and that any added security measures that need to, may need to be take, put in place to make the home more secure are done so. So the Safe at Home Sanctuary Scheme is one such solution so essentially, after maybe a necessary brief period of refuge elsewhere, a woman can return home if there are certain security um, improvements made on the home. Now, that's not just about physical um, hardware and architecture installation, but it's also about kind of a wraparound support with Angorda Shiakana um, and the various support services so that it's safe for a woman to return, that she can be free of intimidation or even any attempts to re-enter the property. So it might require a certain amount of security installations. Schemeworks has, has been established in Britain for quite a number of years, in fact, for over 20 years. Okay. Um, we, we don't have a safe at home sanctuary scheme here in Ireland and Safe Ireland would be advocating that um, that's, that's a, a one, one of the solutions that could be put in place that also takes a certain amount of pressure on refuge 
because we don't want people sitting in refuge for extended periods of time either because then they also block access to other women who can't get in because the places are, 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 are filled. Is it possible to put an estimated figure on the number of individuals who are in situations, violent situations or abusive situations that can't be helped because of lack of resources? I, I, know, I know it's very difficult to do, but have you got a notional figure? Well, in, we, have, we have kind of figures from last year. Um, and last year there were almost 3,000 uh, women that could not be at, at the end of 2021 that could not be facilitated um, in various these, these of course are the ones who, who made themselves known that they required support but presumably that figure could be potentially higher from those who are not coming forward It could be um, I mean we did have um, we did have a scheme uh, Safe Ireland had a scheme with, in partnership with Airbnb um, where Airbnb were financing this and through one of the hotel groups they were able to provide um, uh, emergency accommodation for women where there was no spaces in, in, in refuge or there was no refuge available in the locality. So through a, one of the hotel groups uh, the, the women were able to take respite there and in that instance there were 350 women um, um, who managed to get respite um, in hotels mm-hmm. during that period of time until they... And, and they, that, that, that referral pathway was done through their local specialist DV service. So the DV service was the one that would make the referral. The hotel managers were trained. Um, it, it, it was a very good, it was a very good scheme. And uh, it, it finished in June of this year with Airbnb. But we're hopeful that government will now take up its responsibilities and take on the continuity of that and indeed extend it. Unfortunately, because of the nature of uh, the relationship for that scheme, um, it was only available in seven counties because the, the hotel chain only had presence in seven counties. We would be asking government okay. to extend that as a national scheme. Let's get back to your pre-budget submission. Mm-hmm. You're talking somewhere in the region of £283 million that's required in order to... It's across eight departments within government, such as the, the breadth of... Uh, required services that you need and expertise you need. It's a bit of an ask in the, in the present climate to get two hundred and eighty three million. Is it not? Well, it is, but we have to put a costing on 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 what is required, and and there has to be a starting point somewhere. And I suppose uh, traditionally, domestic violence, domestic and sexual based violence, um, don't even have expenditure headlines in the annual government uh, uh, budget. So. We're hoping that this year there will be some visibility as to where expenditure may exist. Now, not, not all of it requires additional uh, additional expenditure. Some of the schemes exist already, um, so there's no actual cost to government. Some of the eight departments we've mentioned, for example, like um, a waiver of the, of, of the exception needs payment, there's no additional cost to government. It just means that that scheme is already there. It just means that an access pathway needs to be provided for women who are leaving with no money and have children and need access to cash. Um, but certainly some, there are some big capital items in there. So the cost of, of, of providing additional refuge units is in there. And also there is the issue, as, 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 as is, exists across a lot of the other um, discussions at the moment, but there is the issue of medium, long-term um, and permanent housing solutions. So part of our proposal has put a costing on what some of those um, housing solutions might look like um, in, in, over the next number of years. 
So that would really form part of the capital building programme in the house, in the Department of Housing. OK, Miriam, there's one particular group that tends to get lost in this narrative for no other reason that we tend to focus on on the individual who who is being abused, and that's the woman. But there are children involved in this as well, which need to be cared for. There are. And um, I, I think Safe Ireland's um, um, messaging for the last number of years has been very strong on focusing that children are victims of violence, they don't witness domestic violence, they're actually victims of it in their own right. So your original question was how well positioned are the services to be able to respond to the needs of those that are coming in and a lot of the people who are coming in are children so that puts an additional burden on them to have to put specific therapeutic supports in place for children Um, and there are a lot of logistics around children become displaced from their networks from their homes, from their schooling Um, either temporarily or on a long-term basis. I mean, we have one very simple proposal in, for example, that would target children at no additional cost, that the Department of Education would extend the home tuition scheme Mm -hmm. to children in refuge. So it would mean that children in refuge would have access to the home tuition that other other children may have who, for one reason or another, cannot go to school. So that's something we would like to see uh, the Minister extend. Uh, and make available to refugees is, who could it, that. Is it, is it your experience that children require a greater degree of intervention because they're not perhaps as resilient as their mothers who have gone seeking help uh, because they've been in, in, in a situation where they're being abused domestically? The children well, sometimes they, they the biggest problem. require a very, it, it's a differentiated type of approach. They, they certainly need therapeutic supports. They need dedicated counselling supports. Um, as to as to their resilience, I suppose in many instances children have of in those in those situations um, probably have developed you know unfortunately um, levels of resilience that 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 aren't even appropriate for children of those ages. So there's also a need for children to have soft supports and to be able to be put into a situation, you know, where they can enjoy. Um, the, the sort of activities that uh, children should be able to enjoy. So it's a mix of both providing um, counselling and therapeutic supports, but also play and um, um, access to leisure activities that many, very often those children haven't been able to enjoy in, in, in quite the same way as other children. So, you know, you look for 283 million, the likelihood of getting that is pretty slim, but what do you require financially in order to just keep it on an even keel until the next tranche of money is available? Um, well, I, we would certainly be saying that the, domestic, the frontline domestic violence services um, need to be adequately resourced to be able to respond to the increases. We've put in a budget of an additional four million, uh, which would um, allow them to adequately respond. Some of the services only have resources to be able to operate part time Monday to Friday. You know, um, that's not the type of service that's, that, 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 that is accessible to somebody who needs to exit outside of hours or at weekends. So we would like to see all of the services adequately resourced to be able to provide the services that they want to be able to provide to be responsive. Um, we also would like to see uh, the, the commitments that, that, that Minister McEntee made in the publication of Zero Tolerance earlier this year, the establishment of a new statutory agency that will have full responsibility. So we would certainly like to see a commitment in this year's budget uh, to the establishment of that agency uh, throughout 2023.
Okay, Miriam, we must leave it there. Miriam Kivlehan, Programme and Communications Manager with Safe Ireland. Thank you for joining us this morning. There's a couple of things I just want to get to, one in particular in relation to the uh, school bus. Yes, it's this one here. John from Louth phoned in to say that his son was on the bus for four years and this year he didn't get a place. There are 10 empty seats on the bus he normally travelled on that people got offered and are not using. He has to take his son in and out of school every day. It's ridiculous. Something has to be done. The Minister keeps talking about concessionary tickets when it has nothing to do with that. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Homelessness organisation DePaul supported more than 3,600 men, women and children last year, an increase of 5% in the previous year. 479 families came through their services. More than 800 children facing homelessness were helped, up from 772 in 2020. Eight babies were born in the services. Joining us this morning is Senior Services Manager with DePaul Ireland, Neve Thornton. Neve, thank you for joining us this morning. Talk to me first off a little bit about the supports that are available from DePaul. Hi, good morning, Alan. Thanks so much for having me on this morning. Um, yeah, so in DePaul, we have a, a range of services supporting the most vulnerable in our society, um, those experiencing and those at risk of homelessness, both accommodation based services and um, community and outreach services. So are we talking about B&Bs, hotels or actual homes that are available to you? So we have, a, I suppose, a wide range of services. Um, so we would have hostel-based accommodation um, a- across the country and then we would also provide um, in-reach and, and support into the likes of B&Bs and hotels and other um, temporary accommodation. Um, and then we would also support people who have moved out of homelessness and are living in their own home um, just to make that transition um, into independent living. What do you say to those who have expressed quite publicly the view that they're whilst they recognise as an accommodation crisis, there is a bed for everybody somewhere in the country that there's no need to be sleeping on the street. Now, they may not like the idea of going to a hostel, a B&B or a hotel, but nonetheless, there is a bed for people. Um, I suppose well, what I would say is that, you know, we are facing into a crisis um, or we are in the midst of a crisis at the moment and it's quite clear that, you know, supply... Um, does not meet the demands that's out there. From our perspective, we certainly, um, you know, would encourage and support people to access services, but there are people who may not feel at the moment that that is something that they could do. We want to make sure that we provide the best services that we can so that people, you know, feel supported and able to reach out um, Mm -hmm. And, 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 and come into our services. So we're certainly here for anybody who, who wishes to do so. Now, what, what about the sort of people that were requiring services or support from you? We tend to think that it's sometimes the marginalised of society who are the most vulnerable and they're the ones who will need support. It seems that narrative is changing or has done over the past while. Absolutely. In Paul, we've always supported those, you know, at the margins of society, the most vulnerable. But certainly in in recent years, we have seen a shift um, and we are also working more and more with people who I suppose are, are, are finding themselves in more difficult situations purely from maybe economic reasons, as opposed to some of the, the more traditional ways that people might have, have um, entered homelessness. But we're still very much, you know, seeing people coming 
um, into homelessness for a whole range of reasons, um, economic and, and others such as, you know, family breakdown, um, addiction, mental health mm-hmm. uh, concerns um, and, and, and things like that. Now, so is it only temporary intervention that DePaul are able to offer to these people that there comes a time where they either have to go out on their own or they're pushed forward to another service or support organisation? Um, no, I mean, we will work with, with people very much where they are at and, and, and work with them through um, and hopefully out of homelessness. Um, so we're very much committed to supporting people for, you know, as long as they might need it. Um, obviously, there will be times when it will be more appropriate to refer people on to somebody that, that maybe can provide more specialised support with them. But we will certainly continue to offer whatever support we can. Now, um, you, you use the word crisis um, that DePaul has witnessed over the past while that is going to be compounded by the fact that we have a situation where it's not just those those on the margin, but people who can't secure rental accommodation who are in full-time employment and therefore DePaul will come under further and increasing pressure. Are you at a breaking point now? Well, well, certainly it's very difficult at the moment, you know, and we are seeing a situation where there are more people, I guess, you know, looking for our services than we are in a position um, to support. Um, but we will continue, you know, what we are doing. We, we are there every day. Um, but it is challenging at the moment. Um, there's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. And the children, um, another difficulty in that they require specific intervention and services and perhaps accommodation. Does that create further difficulties for you? Absolutely. From our experience, you know, um, children for the most part come into our services with, with their mother. Um, you know, so it's a, a, a single women um, and their children, uh, predominantly, though there are other, other family makeups that we would support as well. And we certainly see, um, you know, in terms of the number of single women accessing our services and the number of beds that we can provide, there's definitely a shortfall. And women do have quite specific support needs, um, you know, particularly in relation to their children um, and maybe health support needs. Um, so we certainly would you know, be advocating for an increase in the availability of women-only services, you know, so that we can continue to appropriately support um, women in our services. Okay, just finally, I want to ask you, I mean, I've no doubt that when you lobby government or politicians or stakeholders or whomever, you get a sympathetic hearing. But, you know, sympathy, it doesn't put food on the table. You, You need money, you need finances, you need support. Have you been given any guarantee that that is coming down the road in the budget for you? Um, my understanding is that you know we're we're still we have lobbied and we have put our position forward in terms of you know our requests, um, you know and and what we would like to see happening um in the coming weeks and months and 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 beyond, um. So fingers crossed and hopefully that you know we will start seeing some of that coming through. Okay, Neve Thornton, we must leave it there. Senior Services Manager with DePaul Ireland joining us now. I just want to remind our listeners, and we did mention this earlier on in the week, you may remember going back to last week, we had quite a number of businesses on the programme who told us, you know, heart-wrenching stories about how long they have been in business and how difficult this particular period for them has been. In fact, it's almost generational what they said to us in terms of looking at being able to continue in business or have to walk away and give back the keys. So we decided that this coming Friday, we want to listen to the stories of families, of pensioners, of elderly people, of young people, the difficulties that they are facing through this, what has now become known as cost of living crisis. 
We want to hear your stories around how you are coping, what your expectations are around the budget and how you will survive the winter. Because let's be honest, it's going to go a little bit further than the winter. It's probably going to go into the first half of next year that we will find ourselves in a position where we're going to be squeezed financially and we will need support. And one wonders whether or not we will have a government introducing an emergency budget in the first quarter or the first half of next year. We just don't know because there's so much happening in the world that is compounding the situation for us and adding to the difficulties. I mean, if we even look at the news this morning where Vladimir Putin came on and more or less said that he's escalating the war in Ukraine, that's going to have consequences for us. So we want to know how you were coping what you want from the government. We want to hear your stories. You can text michael at lmfm.ie. Tell us your stories. If you want to come in on air and talk to us, we're more than happy to do that. But that's going to be happening on Friday. We will have senior politicians from the region who are going to be in studio listening to your stories and trying to answer some of the questions or trying to bring a little bit of reality to the situation and bring back a certain sense of confidence, if they can, to you. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Welcome back. 0861800658 if you want to call us on the programme. Um, we're coming fast to the end of the programme this Wednesday morning, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure anyone who's picked up a newspaper or listened to the radio over the past 24 hours can't be taken by the um, story of an incident which happened in Cherry Orchard on Monday in relation to a joyriding incident. Now, more often than not, joyriding incidents go relatively unreported because they're quite a a regular occurrence. But in this particular case, a guard the car was rammed with a number of um, female guardy in the car who escaped, thankfully, any form of injury. But the story in itself ignited a debate, uh, I suppose, a more... um, robust debate around society and around law and order and around youth culture in Ireland. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, let, let me just bring you um, the details of it. Stephen Breen is Crime Editor with the Irish Sun and joins us this morning. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Perhaps you can just give us a quick synopsis of this story for people who are not familiar with it. Yeah, well, Alan, details of this shocking incident in Cherry Orchard and, and Ballyfermot in West Dublin first emerged around 730 on Monday night when uh, video footage was posted on various social media platforms showing, you know, a large group of people in Cherry Orchard, uh, cars, uh, two cars in particular, speeding along a busy residential uh, area. And then, you know, uh, there's cheers, there are people in the background shouting and and encouraging, you know, the drivers of these cars and driving quite erratically. But it took a more sinister turn when um, the video clearly showed, you know, the two cars ramming into a guard vehicle that was in the area, much to the, the pleasure of the crowd as well. And uh, it showed uh, the, the cars doing handbrake turns, uh, still the young people in the area as well, who had gathered too. And, and then we also see uh, the guards who responded to the, the incident, but then they, they had to leave the area because uh, of, of what happened. And obviously they had to call the backup. But later on that evening, there was some further footage showing uh, the two cars using the incident there. And how, how they were set on fire. Now, you've been on this beat for many years. You know what's happening out there in terms of crime, particularly in, ra- in relation to crime that tends to, as we said, go below the radar. I mean, joyriding 
is a, a problem that has existed for a long, long time. But you put your finger on it when you said it's becoming a little bit more sinister in terms of those people who are egging individuals on, who are taking footage, who are encouraging individuals to perpetrate these crimes and then videoing them and putting them up online. So, I mean, this prompted the the Garda Commissioner to come out and comment. And, and that's quite unusual, is it not? It is, but obviously when people looked at the footage, you know, seeing the brazen nature of the car driving directly at the guard vehicle, this is something that we don't see uh, very often. And also at, at the weekend, I have it in, in the paper today, where you had another stolen car arrived outside Williamstown Guard Station, started beeping the horn, and that is in the hope that the guards will give chase. But I also write about today how young people are using social media to uh, actively promote the fact that they have uh, stolen cars at their disposal and they are uh, encouraging the guards to chase them. But at the moment, there is a, a direction from uh, guard management that, you know, guardy, um, you have uniformed officers on patrol, they can't and they aren't encouraged or they're, they're prevented from um, engaging in any uh, chases of any nature where they would go after a, a stolen car because for them, the priority of life is, is the, the ultimate objective here and they have to keep the community safe but that doesn't stop from those young people who engage in joyriding they just are seeking thrills mm. and seeking regards to go after them and chase them and then obviously put this up on social media for some sort of uh, support from their friends Okay well let's go back to what I was saying at the outset and that it has ignited a debate, a debate that has not been uh, tabled for quite some time but perhaps needs to be talked about and that is society as we know it today are we witnessing a breakdown in the relationship between Garthi and the younger cohort in certain parts of Dublin, not just Dublin, but throughout the country? What is required to be done? There's one side who says, well, they need understanding. There needs to be resources put into marginalised communities to provide them with outlets in order to express themselves, as it were. And then there's the other side of the argument, going back to the former Prime Minister, John Major, when he says, it's time to get back to basics. Where is this conversation going, or what is the outcome of it going to be, do you believe, Stephen? Yeah, but if you look at the different uh, responses that were made yesterday, you have the Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris, talking about how he was going to um, increase and boost uh, and and stand up the, um, the Garda Public Order Unit to deal with problems uh, as we witnessed on Monday night. But on the other hand, you have the local residents I spoke to in Ballyfermot, the local community representatives there and local councillors who don't believe in that model of policing. They believe in community-orientated policing. They want to see more guardy in the area. Uh, they want to see more guards on patrol, a more visible presence to deter you know, young people from getting involved in this. And there was one GRA representative I spoke to, uh, Mark Ferris, who spoke about how if there were more consistent patrolling in the area, then the guards would be able to see large groups of people gathering. But, but, but you know, Stephen, the there's no respect for the Gardaí. So why would you think, or why would they think, by putting more Gardaí on the beat in these areas that the problems will be solved? All it will do is encourage individuals to perhaps attack, to bait, or to do whatever to the Gardaí on the beat. Yeah, but the councillors were also um, were also at, at pains to point out that this this isn't just an issue for uh, the Gardaí. This isn't just a law and order issue. There have been many problems in areas of social deprivation uh, across Dublin. They have been addressing these concerns of antisocial behaviour 
for many, many years, and, and indeed just last week, the Minister for Children, Robert Gorman, was in uh, the same area where that incident took place the other night. So there is an issue of, of funding, and the councillors are all singing from the same hymn sheet where they talk about how there need to be more youth diversion programmes. I mean, I've written about youth diversion programmes in the Finglas area of North Dublin and the positive effect they're having on encouraging young people who may be at risk or come from vulnerable backgrounds who may get involved in, 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 in crime and indeed organised crime. So the, these programmes do work. But it, for them to, to send in, for that incident the other night, if, if the, the riot squad is sent in the public or, you know, then that incident could have escalated then and there could have been risk to public uh, health and also the public property as well. Mm. So well, it, we're, a, a balance. Yeah, it's a very delicate balance there in terms of yeah. knowing how far one needs to go. However, do you get the sense in terms of your reporting and talking to people that momentum is gathering behind the view that perhaps we have to look at a much harder approach legis- legislatively and from a policing perspective? And I say this, I mean, I'm sure you have witnessed it as well. I've been in other European countries where I've seen antisocial behaviour kicking off and I have seen the authorities go in hard and fast with no mercy and it's sorted out very quickly and I can wager that those individuals involved in it will wake up the next morning and say geez I don't think I'll do that again I mean sometimes we, we have to get the stick out on this Absolutely there's a certain train of thought people would endorse that, that view but the people I spoke to in Valley Fermat are more concerned about prevention you know, rather than reaction to certain incidents and I think that the, the GRA rep was talking about if there were more patrols in the area and if they could see groups gathering, then they could bring in more resources to try and prevent um, incidents from escalating out of control. So that there is a fine balance. I don't think anyone has, has the answer. I think it does take a multi-agency approach where you have the guards, the Department of Justice, ministers, local representatives, community groups as well, all working together to try and, and put a, a lid on this. But obviously there are other people who would say that there is a train of thought that if there are stronger deterrents for the young people getting involved in these types of crimes, then maybe that will work, and that's where the justice system comes into play. So well, there are many uh, options on the table. OK, Stephen Breen, Crime Editor with the Irish Sun. Thank you so much uh, for bringing us the latest on that story. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 4237.